0: national security this week a weekly look at american national security issues and now your host john olson good morning everyone and welcome to the august 25th 2021 edition of national security this week i'm your host john olson we get together here on kymn radio every wednesday morning at 9 a.m central time to discuss national security We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, You may recall we've previously had two shows on nuclear weapons. This will be the third, and is a continuation of a show we did back in May with Professor Mark Bell. As a reminder, Mark Bell is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Professor Bell's research examines issues relating to nuclear weapons and proliferation, international relations theory, and U.S. and British foreign policy. His first book, Nuclear Reactions, How Nuclear-Armed States Behave, examines how states change their foreign policies when they acquire nuclear weapons, and is published with Cornell University Press as part of the Cornell Studies and Security Affairs series. Mark Bell holds a doctorate in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, where he was a Frank Knox Memorial Fellow, and a Bachelor of Arts in Politics, Philosophy, and Economics from Saint Anne's College at Oxford University. Professor Mark Bell, welcome back to National Security this week.
1: Thank you. It's good to be good to be back.
0: I, I, I see you're in. We are on Zoom, you and me. Uh, I mm-hmm. see you're in your office at the U campus. Is that right?
1: I am. Yeah, back in back in the office at least for for the time being.
0: Uh, when do classes start up?
1: Uh, classes start back up uh, after Labor Day, so I think the the eighth or the sixth, something something around then.
0: Okay. So we do have a lot to discuss today. Uh, if, let's, let's go ahead and jump right in. When you were here back in May, we covered a wide range of topics regarding nuclear-armed nations, nuclear treaties, and, and related topics. Unfortunately, we ran out of time and weren't able to get into the latest developments in nuclear weapons delivery capabilities and how those capabilities might alter the deterrent strategies nations have employed successfully for many decades. So Professor Bell, if you're amenable, uh, I'd like to pick up where we left off last time. Is that okay?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay, so first question, and we'll start with the United States on this one. Uh, What does the United States have in the way of new or advanced delivery systems, things that we're working on right now as a nation, and how would the U.S. use nuclear weapons in a conflict under these new delivery capabilities? That's that's a very broad question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so so so, to give us a sort of bit of, bit of context i mean i mean the u s basically i mean I think the, the sort of way to understand it is that the u s has the most capable and, and potent nuclear arsenal in the world, right It has large numbers of land based missiles, many of them not so far away from here in in the Dakotas um, Those are kind of aging somewhat there's various discussions about what they should be replaced with, on what timeline they should be replaced all right so that's the that's the land based force. Um, the U.S. has a submarine force that can launch uh, missiles from sea. Uh, that's recently been uh, the subject of some discussion. The Trump administration brought in a new uh, low yield um, uh, submarine launch ballistic missile for various reasons that we can we can discuss and particularly related to, to Russia. Um, and then it has the, the Air Force um, component of uh, so those three components are, are what are called the triad right? And and roughly speaking, the U.S. has about 6,000 warheads, of which a bit under sort of 4,000 are part of the kind of active stockpile rather than being retired or awaiting dismantlement. And of that 4,000, about 1,300 or so are currently sort of actively deployed on missiles, on submarines, on bombers, and so on. So that's sort of what the United States has. Um, I think one of the, the, the most sort of Um, important features of the u.s arsenal really in addition to how sort of varied um the arsenal is in terms of delivery systems and platforms um is the range of yields that these nuclear weapons have you know we think about nuclear weapons as being these huge um uh uh, or having these huge explosions which is certainly true um but there's also a lot of variation right And, and u.s nuclear weapons go from being some of them are very low yield or can be can be um Sort of dialed to have a very low yield, as low as sort of a fraction of a kiloton. Kiloton is sort of a thousand tons of TNT equivalent. Is is how nuclear weapons yields are measured. Uh, so to a fraction of a kiloton up to several hundred kilotons. Um, so unlike a lot of nuclear weapon states, unlike most nuclear weapon states, uh, in fact, the U.S. has a very varied, uh, very powerful uh, arsenal, and that reflects, I think, a couple of things. About you know, you asked about how uh, the U.S. might use nuclear weapons. I mean, the U.S. has never been um, satisfied um, in the way that at least some other countries have been with just thinking about nuclear weapons as a tool for retaliating, right? Or thinking that the purpose of nuclear weapons is simply to deter other countries from using them, right? That's sort of the more defensive nuclear posture um, that some countries have adopted. Uh, The United States has always had a much more sort of offensive nuclear posture that emphasizes um, and is optimized for going first in a conflict, uh, for actually potentially fighting a war with nuclear weapons, uh, for taking out um, an adversary's nuclear arsenal—that's what we call counterforce, rather than countervalue, which is simply sort of about hitting cities. Um, and obviously, if you want to do counterforce, if you want to go after kind of the hardened targets that that states have, the um, their mobile missiles that maybe you know they have various ways of hiding. You want to go after the other states' submarines, but right, you need a lot more. Uh, accuracy, you need a lot more um, uh, capability, you need a lot more sort of maneuverability of your of your weapons and so the the u s arsenal and a lot of the capabilities that the United States is developing in some ways you know are, are sort of all kind of aimed around that in a lot of ways right the u s arsenal reflects a commitment to be able to do those things uh, that a lot of countries simply haven 't haven 't tried to do, and so in many ways, some of the most interesting sort of recent developments are less about the nuclear weapons themselves. Um, And I'm more about the sort of intelligence or the satellite technology, um, the accuracy, um, um, all of which allows the United States potentially to, you know, try to take out another country's uh, nuclear weapons at a first strike, uh, to try to make it more credible that the United States would, you know, defend um, uh, allies in a war and so on. So, so. So that's sort of the, the, the broad picture of the U.S. arsenal. Sorry, I talked for a while there, but that's the broad picture of the U.S. arsenal and, and what it would be used for.
0: And if I could, what I'll do is uh, sort of summarize what I think I heard uh, you talking about here is that the U.S. has retained uh, from a from a strategic position uh, a willingness to use them first, to use them in an offensive role, nuclear nuclear weapons. Uh, and we have very capable dial-a-yield uh, nuclear weapons. Weapons that we can choose very specifically how we want to use them, whether in in sort of quote unquote a tactical situation or more of a strategic role. I, I think anytime you you would use a nuclear weapon, it's immediately strategic in nature. <laughs> but but you know from a from a yield perspective, it might be a somewhat lower yield. So from a delivery systems capability, that's really what we're talking about here is some significant changes in delivery capabilities. Can you can you talk a little bit about what the U.S. has been working on in those areas?
1: Yeah, so I mean, so so as I said, right? The you know there's a big program or sort of debate underway about um, how quickly and um, uh, whether to upgrade the land-based missiles, Um, U.S. intercontinental ballistic missiles, the launch from from silos in you know the Dakotas or or wherever, um, are pretty pretty old technologies at this point. and there's sort of been a debate about how to, how and when to, um, to upgrade those and those, uh, at the moment, there's sort of a modernization process, uh, going on. There's some debate about whether that might get slowed down. Um, so that's sort of, sort of one thing, uh, as I mentioned, the Trump administration brought in this new, uh, low yield, uh, submarine, uh, launched, uh, missile that I think, uh, first started to be deployed in maybe 2018, uh, or around then, um, And so you're seeing, and and then they're sort of constantly developing, as I mentioned, these sort of um, uh, space-based capabilities, um, ISR capabilities, um, anti-submarine warfare capabilities, accuracy capabilities, all of which have sort of um, developed significantly in their their abilities over the last few decades, many of which remain classified. You know, we don't know a lot of the details about some of these things, uh, but all of which sort of add to uh the U.S.'s sort of uh, ability to use nuclear weapons in, a, as you say, a very sort of precise way. I mean, yeah. to the extent that you can ever be precise with with, with, with weapons of that size. Um, <laughs> all relative, could right? Use them for, sorry?
0: It's all relative?
1: Right, exactly, yeah.
0: Horseshoes, hand grenades, and nuclear weapons, close counts.
1: Right, Yeah.
0: Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Mark Bell from the University of Minnesota. We're continuing our discussion from May of this year regarding nuclear strategy, nuclear deterrence, and advanced nuclear weapons delivery capabilities. Uh, so, so, Mark, let's let's shift over to Russia. Uh, obviously, you, you just mentioned that a lot of the what the U.S. has been working on remains in the classified world. Uh, thankfully, we have uh, diligent members of the press corps all around the world who have pu- been publishing things a, a little more precisely about what Russia is doing and even China, and we'll get into China a little bit later. But let's shift over to Russia. Uh what what is the latest on Russia's nuclear strategy? I, I haven't heard that they've been working on new nuclear warhead technologies, but they are f- focused pretty heavily on delivery capabilities. So so what's the, what? Let's start with their nuclear strategy. What do you see developing in Russia today, as far as nuclear strategy and deterrence goes?
1: Yeah, the the Russian case is a really interesting one. I mean, I think you know, I mean, the, the sort of broad picture is that, like the United States, Russia has a has a sort of big, diverse nuclear force. I mean, in general. The Russian force is a little less cutting edge than the United States, a little less potent, um, a little less optimized for for first use and, and counterforce. But but uh, in the grand scheme of things, Russia is the only other state that has a sort of comparable nuclear arsenal to, to that that the United States has. Um, and I think the sort of the big question at the moment um, with, with respect to Russia and how their nuclear strategy is evolving is that there's a lot of concern in D.C. that, that Russia is moving towards what what some People are calling this sort of escalate to de-escalate strategy. I mean, escalate to de-escalate is a little bit of a sort of euphemism. I mean, it's really an escalate to to win strategy. Um, And and the idea is that, you know, Russia might try to take some territory, say, in Eastern Europe, maybe more of Ukraine, part of a NATO, Eastern European NATO ally, something like that. But they would do that conventionally. And then they would basically threaten to use low-yield nuclear weapons tactically against... The United States or other NATO forces to try and deter the United States from retaliating to try to take that territory back.
0: And, and if I can j- just interject very quickly, yeah. what we have seen in Russian military exercises over the last few years is exactly that same scenario playing out in how they decide they're going to they're going to run their wars war, war games. Right, right. So it's a little and it's so- a little uh, concerning, right? <laughs>
1: Maybe yeah, I mean, I mean, and this was part of the argument that um, for the um, for the, the, the low yield submarine launch ballistic missile that the Trump administration put forward, right? That that you would need a sort of low yield response to be able to deter Russia from using that low yield option, and therefore, once you had that, that would stop Russia from thinking that they could prevail in that sort of kind of feta accompli in, in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting, though, I think, I mean, in some ways, you know, we talk about this in in nuclear terms. Um, in some ways, though, this is really a, a sort of conventional military problem, right? I mean, the real issue is that the United States and NATO is worried that it doesn't have the conventional military capability to deter that initial Russian attack on those states. And so trying to kind of come up with a sort of nuclear response to that after the fact is, is sort of is always going to be like a little bit tricky, I think, and is, isn't isn't quite a sort of satisfactory solution to, to that problem.
0: It does sort of put the... Uh... Uh, put the strategic thinkers uh, and the military planners in the, in the U.S. and NATO uh, sort of in a, a difficult situation uh, when you have to consider: well, how do we blunt a Russian offensive into you know a full-scale Russian offensive into Ukraine, or worse, uh, into one of the Baltic states, uh, for instance, uh, if they want to kind of reunite that part of the old Soviet Union? So what right. about? And I uh, think that's
1: you know. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that there's a ton of evidence that Russia is sort of itching to itching to do this on an on an imminent basis. Um, no. You know, and this is not a problem that the United States is unfamiliar with. Right. It's a problem that the United States dealt with throughout the Cold War um, when when the, the Soviet military was far closer to kind of core allies, was far more capable than the than the Russian military is today. So this, you know, in some ways, this is not a this is not a new problem. Right. Um. But part of the issue is that, that NATO has pushed so far east um, that it sort of starts to become a little less credible that the United States would think about defending those states. Um, you know, the United States could make a pretty credible case that, you know, West Germany or France were sort of crucial to its grand strategy and crucial to its national interests in a way that it's much harder to do for Estonia or Latvia. Um, and I think that that sort of inherent reduction in the credibility of the commitment the United States has tried to make, I think sort of adds to this kind of concern, right? That therefore, it's, it's, it's going to be harder to persuade the Russians that you might fight to defend those states. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true.
0: So, so let's move uh, over to uh, from Russian nuclear strategy to talk specifically about new delivery capabilities that we know the Russians are working in. Uh, what are the Russians developing these days? And, and how should the U.S. think about those delivery capabilities?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something that, that that's really sort of tricky to interpret, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, we've we've certainly heard reports and we've heard things about various sort of uh, kind of exotic delivery systems that the Russians are sort of um, uh, trying out. You know, we've heard about sort of nuclear-powered cruise missiles and potentially nuclear-powered torpedoes and all sorts of weird and kind of crazy things. Um and I think it's, it's just very hard to to know how how seriously we should take that, right? Yep. Are these is is are these things they're developing because they're really sort of in, they think they are important parts of their nuclear arsenal, um, or my sort of sort of hunch is that that these are sort of we should really think about these as kind of as kind of show ponies, right? They're they're things that <laughs> Russia is is sending signals about to show everyone that they are still a cutting edge power that they're working on cutting edge systems but that these are unlikely to ever really be integrated into their overall nuclear plans in sort of a major way right these are not going to be the kind of a core part of their nuclear arsenal at least not in not in the the sort of short or medium term um but it's very hard to know right i mean and and you know I, i think even sort of People who who watch this these issues very closely with respect to Russia, there's there's a lot of debate among uh, those that community of experts, and I'm not I'm sort of looking in as an outsider into into that community, but I think there is a lot of uncertainty.
0: Yeah, uh, 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 Vladimir Putin has uh, he's a guy who sits at the at the poker table with an incredibly weak hand and and manages to to win uh, round (laughs) after round after round, and and part of it might be that uh, you know these. These capabilities that they're developing, you know, uh, hypersonic glide platform, I think they call it the avant right. which is delivered by ICBM, uh, theoretically beats any missile defense system that the U.S. Uh, could put forward. Uh, those un- unmanned undersea uh, vehicles that, uh, you know, UUVs with a nuclear warhead uh, sitting inside one, they, they theoretically have global range, so once they get it underway, I think it might be even a nuclear-powered UV. Mm-hmm. You could park yeah. that off of, uh, you know, almost drive it right into the port at uh, San Diego uh, or Norfolk, and uh, the the U.S. Uh, you know Pacific or Atlantic fleets are are badly decimated uh, if you were to detonate one of those in in a, in a hostile action. So there's lots of lots of things they're working on. We also know they're working on some newer versions of their. Uh, ICBMs and uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles as well. Uh those are more traditional delivery capabilities, but at, more accurate, more reliable maybe, uh not on par probably still with the US, but getting there. Would is that a fair fair
1: assessment? Yeah, I think so. And and and, and I mean what sort of what's sort of tricky though is that you know, in some way, you know, I mean, you sort of mentioned the ability to to get past U.S. missile defense system. I mean, the Russian nuclear arsenal couldn't already get past U.S. missile defense systems. I mean, and U.S. missile defense systems aren't aren't designed to try to sort of prevent. No. Uh, a kind of, you know, maybe they can pick off one or two sort of straggling nuclear weapons from a from a country like North Korea. Right. Uh, but the idea that you can defend against a, a you know an attack from the Russian nuclear arsenal is is is, is you know, it just it just can't do that. So then the question is, well, what what extra are they getting from right. from the sort of more more kind of exotic capabilities? Yeah. And and that's really the question that I think we don't yet have an answer to. Right. And and that's what makes me think this is this may be more about sort of signaling, you know, that they are still a top tier country, that they're a sophisticated country, that they have cutting edge scientists, um, that it is about really improving sort of their their nuclear arsenal with the aim of sort of improving the outcome of a nuclear war for them.
0: Mm. Um, So it's a little bit more about propaganda. And maybe it's just research for the sake of research to see if it can be done.
1: Right. And, you know, Russia has a big, you know, military scientific bureaucracy. um, And and just like in the United States, those military and scientific bureaucracies sometimes do things that, you know, (laughs) don't make a ton of strategic sense or don't have the full authorization from above. Um, And, you know, so I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty.
0: All right, Mark, uh, let's go ahead and shift over to China. I'd like to cover China, and then we can get into sort of these discussions on how these uh, changes in delivery capabilities might impact uh, deterrence uh, strategy. So for China, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure you saw this too, recently read the U.S. intelligence community identified a massive new uh, missile silo complex in western China for Mm -hmm. uh, silo-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, and the assessment is that China is building up their nuclear arsenal, about 300 uh, silos, I think, is what they spotted on, on imagery. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, Chinese nuclear weapons? Uh, I think they. what I saw previously before this discovery of these silos was that there was an estimate of about maybe 300, 350 Chinese uh, nuclear warheads in their arsenal. Uh, but clearly that number may have doubled if they have just 300 ICBM silos in the western uh, western China. Uh, any insights on developments in China's nuclear strategy uh, and then maybe delivery capabilities as well?
1: Yeah, so this, I mean, it's it's an incredibly interesting um, kind of area and one that's, that's sort of rapidly changing. I mean, the, the um, just to give us a little bit of historical context, right, I mean, China has sort of pretty consistently had, um, uh, since they first tested nuclear weapon in, in uh, 1964, um, has had a very relative to, to the united states and, and the soviet union and now russia um, has consistently had a very small nuclear arsenal and quite a vulnerable nuclear arsenal on a very very low sort of level of alert right and this is kind of a surprise in some ways right we would sort of have expected they would have you know their rising power you know very uh, potentially significant ambitions in global politics uh, in, in some ways, it's sort of odd that they haven't invested significantly in, in building up their nuclear force. Um, but for a long time, and this was consistent with with the views of Chinese leaders going back to Mao, um, the goal was to sort of have enough weapons that if you were attacked, you would probably be able to attack back, right? And, and that probability, that possibility would be sufficient to stop anyone from, from initiating an attack.
0: So that's real traditional deterrence thinking.
1: Right. A very sort of, you know, Sort of minimum deterrence um we're only going to build as much as we need to sort of stop someone else from attacking us first
0: um, and they have a no first use policy or have had that
1: consistently yeah, for, for a long period of time and, and relative to you know and, and a sort of reasonably credible no first use policy in the sense that it, it is reflected in the sort of posture that they have right the posture is very much optimized for retaliation and not for, for first use uh, but that brings us to these new developments and what we should make of them, right? Because I think, you know, yeah, so as you say, right, uh, there were actually two discoveries of two significant um, silo uh, fields um, and various sort of anonymous quotes from U.S. intelligence um, folks saying there's actually a third one that, that hasn't been publicly revealed. So this seems to be a pretty significant um, buildup. And so the question is what we should sort of think about this, um, my own view is that actually this is is the less significant of um, developments that are going on in China's uh, nuclear arsenal. I think the way we should interpret these these new silos is that you know U.S. counterforce capabilities have gotten much more capable over time, and therefore over time it has become more plausible that the United States could in fact take out all of China's. Um, capabilities. And some have argued that actually the United States does have that capability, right? It's not even sort of, you know, wouldn't even be that challenging. That is correct. (laughs) And therefore, right? And therefore, if you're the Chinese, well, what do you do? The obvious thing to do is to just increase your numbers of missile, right? Give the United States more targets to hit. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, you know, you, you would do that even if you didn't want to change your posture from a, from a purely retaliatory posture, right? that you, it would make sense for um, to build a bunch of silos. You don't even necessarily need to put warheads in all of them, right? But you still, right. the United States <laughs> won't know, wh- and this was the what was called the shell game from back in the Cold War. Yep. The U.S. wouldn't know which ones had missiles in. So you, and then you have to hit all of them, even if they don't actually all have, have missiles in them. Um, so I think the, the, the sort of increase in silos is, um, you know, obviously it's not something that the United States would want um, to have, and it makes it harder for the United States to... Um, um to take out chinese nuclear capabilities but but that by itself does not indicate to me at least a sort of fundamental shift in in strategy what i think the more significant shift is um is china's investment in some different types of missile capabilities over the last few years right so uh, for example the the df-26 that came into the chinese force um a few years ago which is quite similar to the um uh, in some ways to the Pershing II missile that the U.S. deployed in, in Europe in the 1980s, right? this is a much more sort of accurate, much more shorter-range missile, uh, c- can potentially be sort of maneuvered in flight, potentially has a, a, a hot-swapping capability, right, which is the ability to sort of switch between nuclear and conventional warheads um, sort of in the battlefield. Um, that, I think, and a and, and certain amount of related capabilities... That suggests more of a shift to me and a more of a kind of um, interest in um, using nuclear weapons, not simply as a retaliatory capability um, and potentially moving towards a sort of uh, a force that at least has some capability, some, uh, some interest in uh, using nuclear weapons in a, in a conventional military conflict.
0: And probably more in a in a tactical sense. Is that a good uh, assessment? Right. For... you could use
1: this potentially to sort of you know, sink U.S. aircraft carriers, or um, yeah, or keep you know U.S. aircraft carriers you know further away from from Chinese coastlines, and um, so that's yeah. I mean, at, at least plausibly, it would have those those capabilities. Yeah.
0: So the missile you talked about, the DF-26. That DF stands for Dongfeng, which means East Wind, is the translation from Chinese into English. Uh, the Chinese have been developing these ballistic missiles for quite some time. The Dongfeng 21 was one of the earlier versions, and that was sort of considered the first of those carrier killer uh, missiles. And they've continued to advance uh, up to the Dongfeng 26, and I'm sure there'll be more more missiles in that uh, in that line of development as things go on. Uh, so, Mark, uh, so these. These signals, these, ambition, these ambitions that the Chinese are are, are executing right now and advancing or expanding their, their nuclear uh, footprint, nuclear weapons footprint, uh, how does this impact U.S.-China relations moving forward? Is their goal to sort of get us to consider them to be on par with us from a strategic deterrence perspective? Is it still deterrence for them for the most part? Uh, or do they really plan on using – getting rid of their first strike, uh, no first strike policy and maybe using – uh, shorter range uh, nuclear ballistic missiles, nuclear armed ballistic missiles, in a conflict like say over Taiwan.
1: Yeah, um, I mean I think we don't know fully. Um, you know, I mean I think these um, well, this sort of reflects is, is a few things. I mean, first, um, you know, I mean, kind of um, what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Um, the right. U.S. It's, it's hard for the United States to complain about China doing a bunch of things that a the U.S. all Already does, and and cons- the United States considers to be crucial to its national security, and and would never consider negotiating away. Um, and second, that these are these are sort of you know in some ways fairly predictable responses to things that the United States has done. Right, if the U.S. builds a bunch of highly potent counterforce capabilities, if you're sitting in Beijing, you would be an idiot not to. <laughs> Build more retaliatory capabilities to assure your ability to retaliate, even as U.S. offensive capabilities um, uh, improve. And so, you know, to me, none of this is is very surprising. Moreover, I mean, I think you know you're right, right, that it signals a certain amount of ambition, and, and it has long been the case that Chinese military investments um, have aimed at. Um, pushing the United States further away from China's coastline, right? Um, China does not like the fact that U.S. um, aircraft carriers can, you know, steam through the Chinese, you know, the the Straits of Taiwan. It does not like the fact uh, that U.S. highly offensively capable U.S. um, naval assets can get very close to China's coast in the same way that the United States wouldn't like it if China, you know, if Chinese submarines and aircraft carriers were you know um patrolling up the west coast of 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 the united states and so
0: and and that may happen someday
1: (laughs) well sure and and you know um and so i think you know a lot of a lot of chinese capabilities you know not just in the nuclear realm but if you look at what they're investing in in terms of um uh conventional missile you know land sea missiles or over the horizon radar um Uh, Greater submarine capabilities You know, all of these are basically designed To increase the costs for the United States Of operating close to China Um, And You know, it's not at all Surprising that that China would would want Those uh, capabilities But, you know This doesn't bode well for US-China Relations because the United States You know, has shown no interest in allowing Itself to be pushed out of the Western Pacific Right And as long as the United States, um, you know, refuses to do that, you're sort of, you know, these capabilities are sort of increasing. Uh, But ultimately, I mean, the sort of the tricky thing for the United States moving forward over sort of, you know, the coming decades will be that ultimately it's probably going to be a lot cheaper for China to develop, um, you know, what are in some ways sort of defensive capabilities, right, that keep the United States at arm's length than it is for the going to be for the United States to maintain the ability to project that power, yeah. far away from Ch- from the United States own territory, right into China's backyard. And so that sort of um, the sort of hard truth of that kind of cost calculus, I think, will ultimately kind of start to become more and more challenging for the United States to overcome. <laughs>
0: So, I would suggest that there's a bit of a Chinese grand strategy there that uh, they recognize that we're thirty trillion dollars in debt, and the more they can push us to have to develop offensive capabilities which tend to be more expensive, the further they push us into deeper debt
1: <laughs> yeah but, and, and more broad you know i mean you know u s grand strategy you know I mean in some ways this was not so dissimilar to what the United States did to did to the Soviet Union in the last right. you know, decade of the cold war that's and, true um. <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, you know, if China China wants to presumably be a a great power in the way that the United States is, or the way that the Soviet Union was, um, and part of that is is a feeling of um, uh, that it's entitled to, or its national security benefits from a sort of sphere of influence, right? This is something the United States has long wanted and long claimed, right? I mean, you know, Monroe Doctrine was all about this, right? (laughs) That's Um, right. Yeah, um, and you know, and, and so it's, you know, it's not surprising to me that China would want that. And the question is sort of, can the United States come to terms with a situation in which China has a little more influence in its own backyard? Yeah. Um And that necessarily means a little less influence for the United States.
0: Yep, that's true. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Mark Bell from the University of Minnesota. And we're continuing our discussion from earlier this year in May uh, regarding nuclear strategy, nuclear deterrence, and advanced nuclear weapons delivery capabilities. Uh, So Professor Mark Bell right, uh, let's move into sort of this discussion on deterrence uh, and nuclear strategy. How, how do you see nuclear deterrence shaping up in this age of uh, robotics, uh, unmanned platforms and, and these advanced nuclear delivery capabilities, hypersonic missiles for instance, uh, things like that? What is what does nuclear deterrence look like going forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so I mean, in some ways nuclear deterrence doesn't look that different in my view. But the problem is that a lot of states in the United States especially, but other countries as well, Want more than deterrence from their nuclear forces, right? Yeah. Um, and and in this to this end, I think two sort of sets of capabilities are particularly um, kind of worrisome in certain ways, or or at least threaten the kind of whatever kind of stability we we currently have. Uh, so one of the other various technologies and delivery systems that that are packaged up in what what some folks call this kind of new era of counterforce, right? That Um, You know, the accuracy revolution, the remote sensing revolution, um, uh, hypersonic capabilities, right? All of these potentially give you more offensive capabilities that make it more plausible for more countries to try to take out the nuclear weapons of another country. Yeah. And that increases uh, sort of first strike incentives. Basically, it reduces... Um, the reliability of countries' second-strike capabilities. And as we've seen with China, right, if you reduce the the reliability of their second-strike capability, they're likely to try to invest in more capabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's in peacetime. And and within a crisis, countries may start to get much sort of itchier trigger fingers, right? If they're worried that the United States or another country might be able to take out their capabilities, it makes more sense for you to try to use your capabilities earlier Um, in a crisis. And that's why, you know, in my view, um, a sort of US North Korea crisis would be extraordinarily dangerous, because I think North Korea has very good reason to fear that the United States could take out their nuclear capabilities. And therefore, they have very strong incentives to use their nuclear weapons very early in a crisis, right? Um, And so, in my view, a a sort of real uh, crisis with North Korea could, could escalate to the nuclear level much quicker than than a lot of folks think, I think. So that's one set of things. It's the, the sort of all these kind of new era of counterforce technologies. The other th- big thing I think that we should be thinking about is is cyber capabilities. Mm. Um and and here it's it's even trickier in some sense because states can't really advertise the capabilities they have. Right. Right. Once you advertise once you say you can do something, it's generally pretty easy for the adversary to sort of patch whatever vulnerability in their system. Right. Uh, but again, this has the potential to kind of reduce the reliability of a country's second strike capability, right? If you're North Korea, you're probably pretty worried that the United States has certain cyber capabilities that could just turn your missiles off, right? Could, could stop them from being launched. And if you're worried about that, you're going to again want to use them early before you lose the ability to use them. Um, and so both of these sort of sets of capabilities, I think, um, and even you know it doesn 't even have to be the capabilities themselves, but the fears of these capabilities, right the worry that countries might have these capabilities um,
0: F- fear is a tremendous driver of behavior right
1: right and <laughs> and exactly and and so you know these all of these these sort of package of things I think basically reduce the um, uh, sort of any kind of crisis stability that we currently have and make crises between nuclear armed states potentially much more dangerous. Uh, are much more liable to escalate to the nuclear level uh, than than has been the case in the past.
0: So all that said, uh, we know that uh, going back even to the <clears throat> second second Obama administration and throughout the Trump administration, there was a lot of discussion about, <coughs> excuse me, of uh, upgrading the U.S. inventory, the, the entire triad, to the tune of about a trillion dollars, I think is what the number was I, that I saw if we wanted to upgrade everything. So considering these challenges that we have, you know, Russia sort of playing their cards and, and China expanding, should the U.S. maintain the traditional nuclear triad? What do you think?
1: <laughs> I mean, the, the, what's interesting about the triad is that, that as it was developed, there was no sort of strategic logic really for having this set of systems, right? This was a something that kind of emerged in a very kind of, haphazard sort of historically kind of contingent um way more driven by like inter-service rivalry really than it was (laughs) by any sort of strategic logic Uh, but it's become this sort of um uh this sort of thing that you can't question now in 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 mainstream sort of defense politics in in dc that if you're you know if you're not for maintaining the triad you're not sort of serious about deterrence (laughs) in some sense um, I mean, my view is that if you just want deterrence, sure, you can do it much more cheaply. Um, you could you could get rid of all the land-based missiles and you could get rid of all the Air Force nuclear forces and you could rely on submarines. You know, this is what the British do. It's what the French do. Um, the submarine force that the United States has is much bigger than the submarine force that any of those other countries have. Mm-hmm. And it's completely survivable. Um, and, you know, and, and there's no real plausible threat on the horizon to to that survivability. So if all you want to do is to be able to retaliate and to guarantee your retaliation in the aftermath of a nuclear attack and therefore deter that attack from happening, in my view, you could just do that with submarines. Um, But as I sort of suggested earlier, right? I mean, the problem is that the United States doesn't just want deterrence, right? It wants a lot more from its nuclear forces um, than to simply deter other states from using nuclear weapons against it. It wants the option of using nuclear weapons against other states, It wants not only to deter attacks against the United States, but also against its allies that it may be harder to credibly signal that the United States will actually fight against, uh, fight for. It wants to stop other countries acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, It wants the ability to fight a nuclear war in various locations and at various kind of, you know, levels of escalation. And once you want all those things and you want, and the sort of, powerful political coalitions that exist in support of those capabilities um i think major reforms start to seem a lot harder right and that's part of why it's been so politically difficult for um uh for u.s policymakers to um uh to suggest significant reforms to um the u.s sort of nuclear posture i mean the obama administration right i mean didn't really want to do any of this stuff yeah. um but it was basically the price they had to pay to get a new arms control treaty with russia through the senate uh the clinton administration tried to um do a conduct a major nuclear posture review that in in theory put sort of everything on the table and was going to potentially lead to major reforms and and, and it was sort of scuttled at, you know in in um very quickly by a sort of combination of of different political coalitions that that, that very quickly emerged. so um, so, can you do this stuff much more cheaply? Yes. Um, is there is there much prospect of that happening? I don't. I don't really see it. Yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: So that that brings us to the Biden administration. Uh, if you were to be an advisor on the National Security Council, taking a look at these issues of uh, nuclear strategy and nuclear deterrence, <clears throat> how what would you advise the Biden administration to do on a new nuclear treaty that takes into consideration all these latest developments that we've been talking about today? Uh, would you advise bilateral agreements between the U.S. and Russia, and then another one between the U.S. and China, for instance? Uh, maybe a try, you know, a multilateral uh, between the three big nuclear powers, or, or would you push even further for a, a new treaty amongst all the nuclear powers, current nuclear powers, to try and reduce this uh, danger of, of nuclear exchanges?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad I'm not advising them. I mean, it's an incredibly, <laughs> I mean, it's an incredibly difficult, hard, hard time. I think to be. Uh, pursuing new arms control efforts. I mean,
0: tensions are very high.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the basic, in my view, the basic approach should be a sort of multi-pronged approach. I think trying, I think trying to do too much is a recipe for achieving nothing. Um, And particularly, I think a, um, this idea of sort of a trilateral treaty between the U S Russia and China I think it's basically a non-starter. And I think yeah. we're trying to achieve that will doom any possibility of achieving anything else. I, I, uh, just I, I, because China's numbers, are, right. you know, even if you take a sort of maximal view of these latest developments, China's arsenal is still massively below what either the U.S. or Russia has. And so China will just turn around and say, well, you two go ahead and negotiate. And you know, once you've got your nuclear arsenals down to levels comparable to us, then come back and talk to us. Then, yeah. And that's like that's not an unreasonable position for them <laughs> it, to take.
0: It, it is not. <laughs> um,
1: so you know, so so I think the basic approach should be should be multi pronged. I mean, I think it should. You know, I think continuing arms controls efforts with Russia uh, beyond to so that there is something to replace a new start with in the aftermath when when the extended when the extension of new staff, um, uh expires. Um, and again, you know, and this may be less about kind of continuing to try and bring numbers down, although it may be partly that, but, but more about retaining uh, the sort of inspections and the transparency um, and, and frankly, just the, the, the kind of institutional venue to discuss these issues um, that Newstart provides.
0: So, so we really, uh, I think, we, we need to get back to a trust, but verify uh, capability then since we've sort of, <laughs> yeah, I mean, or, or, or of you know,
1: or, or don't trust Whatever. I mean, you know, don't trust, but verify. I mean, you don't or verify because you don't trust. Right. I mean, it, I think there's sort of, um, you know, the, people say, well, you know, you, you know, the whole point is that you can't, you know, you don't have to make these deals with countries that you trust. Right. And therefore you're always going to be, you know, and it's sort of the ugly truth of international politics that you have to. Make deals with countries you don't much like, and, and 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 that sort of pragmatism, I think is is going to be really important um, for uh, for some of these efforts, right? So, you know, so I think so so that should be one one path, right? Is the is sort of continuing efforts with Russia. Um, I think arms control with China is important, but I think those efforts are going to look very different from the kind of arms control efforts the US saw with. Um, with, with Russia. Um, and I think, frankly, they should be, so they're, they're going to be less about numbers uh, because the numbers are, are at such a different level, right? China just has so far yeah. fewer than the United States. Yeah. Uh, but there are meaningful negotiations that there could be on issues like crisis stability on, um, on potentially on agreements about the kind of assets you might target with cyber capabilities, potentially agreements not to target, Um, Either country's nuclear command and control systems, for example, ways to potentially reduce the risk of crises escalating to the nuclear level. Uh, I think there are a range of productive things that could be discussed and agreements that could be made between the United States and China. Uh, But I don't think they'll look very similar to um, the kind of uh, the sort of salt and start treaties that the US and the Soviet Union uh, signed. And then I think the third priority has to be for the Biden administration trying to fix the sort of mess that that the Trump administration left with with Iran um, when it withdrew from from the Iran nuclear deal and trying to um, uh, trying to get the Iranian nuclear program uh constrained in a in a meaningful way again um, and that you know is um, another sort of big challenge but uh, so those would be sort of the three the three areas that I would um, suggest that uh, the Biden administration pursue, but I think try to pursue them separately. I think trying to tie them together into a sort of grand bargain among, you know, the U S Russia and China or all the nuclear armed States, I think is um, uh, would be great, but I just think is a very low, it's a a very high risk approach to take to to some of these things. I think it would be better to get some sort of um, it's better to better to, hit some singles and, and get on base than it is to, you know, strike out swinging for the, swinging for the fences. So,
0: so you're an advocate of moneyball. <laughs> you want people to get on base, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Well, Professor Mark Bell, that has been a, a fantastic discussion today on uh, nuclear deterrence, new nuclear uh, delivery capabilities and, and uh, related topics. Uh, so, Mark, what, what classes are starting up again soon, right after Labor Day. What courses are you teaching in this fall semester?
1: yeah so i'm actually teaching a class on these issues i'm teaching a class on the on the politics of nuclear weapons um an upper level uh undergrad class so if any any um university of minnesota undergrads are uh listening feel free to sign up to that class it's it's a good class and um yeah i really i really enjoy teaching it it's sort of a a class that allows students to really kind of explore you know some of the most kind of consequential events of, of in human history over the last seventy five years uh a lot of the most important issues facing uh, U.S. foreign policy and the foreign policies of other countries, uh, and frankly, just some of the sort of biggest, most important, scariest issues in international politics today. And and so it, it's always a always a good class. It's a fun class to to teach.
0: I can imagine there are some uh, some pretty great discussions that go on in the classroom. Hopefully, that'll be able to uh, happen in the face to face manner. Uh, we'll see how yeah. d- the delta variant impacts us. Yeah. Uh, So we've reached the end of our show for this week. Professor Mark Bell, thank you so much for joining us a second time here on National Security This Week.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for for having me.
0: And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. I'll find experts who can join us to address your topic. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.